Today's reading is from a selection of books uh, from James, Galatians, and Hebrews. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, will you join me? Father, for this day, you've made it because your presence is here, because your word is a living word, because you inhabit the praises of your people and you live in those that believe in you. We ought to be filled with such optimism and hope. But you know that our hearts are weak and like the hymn, We are prone to wander, Lord. We feel it, prone to leave the God we love. Would you anchor us today? Would you meet each one of us in our place of need? And may you have the glory for that. In Christ's name, amen. Last week, we started a series we're calling Life in the Spirit, and it follows the Easter celebration we had, the Christian gospel says that when the Son of God, Jesus Christ, came to give his life and die and be raised from the dead, that he ascended into heaven and he sent his spirit upon all those that believe in him. And so we're thinking about that as we look toward what's called Pentecost and what does it mean to live in concert with God's spirit. And uh, the leadership of the church, the elders, we thought, well, let's hit some of these topics together, more of a topical study. And I've uh, named tonight's sermon uh, Search and Rescue Training. In 2007, Sarah Taylor, a mom in Britain, her daughter Nadia was abducted by her ex-husband, and he took her to Libya. Well, when she discovered that, she was able to raise enough money through charity to get over there and did have a chance to see her daughter and see her husband, uh, ex-husband at that time. But not soon after, he hid the child and refused to disclose where she was. And so this mom uh, went back home. She quit her job. She sold her house. And she went over to Libya. And for the next two years, she worked through the court systems so that he would be prosecuted Eventually, the Prime Minister of Britain, along with Colonel Gaddafi, uh, weighed in and her daughter was returned to her. You know, uh, it's often said that there's no stronger bond than a mother with their child. 
uh, and what this mother did to search and recover her child. But there is one stronger bond, and that's between God and his children. God and those that love him. He will go to whatever lengths to find them. Jesus Christ told a famous parable of the the farmer who leaves 99 sheep to go find the one that's gone. And he said, so the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. Jesus Christ said that the purpose for which he came was to seek and find you. That's why the Son of Man came. It got me thinking a bit about the whole idea of search and rescue. And uh, some of you may have known this, but I didn't, that you know, it's not just a concept, it's an entire field of study. Uh, it, you know, books and books and articles written on this. And it really varies, uh, the different types. There are different types of lost people. For instance, depending on their age and how you'll find them and the way they behave. A young child, often when they're lost, will lie down and go to sleep undercover. So it's good to know that. Those that have mental challenges behave differently when they're lost. Alzheimer's patients have difficulty going back. They typically just go forward. Or those that have mental challenges many times will hole up in the same place for several days. Or the way lost people handle their own pace. Hikers, for instance, often when they're lost will go downhill about two miles per hour. And so those that search and find them have to know all these different facets of lost people. And then they're trained in many ways, trained how to um, you know, compass, mapping, GPS, trained in how they can actually uh, begin to locate people based on their patterns and their behavior and age, as I mentioned, trained how to build what's called action shelters, shelters for people when they find them, trained how to service them medically, all these different things that they do to help recover people in search and rescue, learning to read clues like crushed grass and a scrape on a side of a hill. Now, why do I go into all this detail? Am I planning to go into this profession? No. Are you? No. I I belabor the details because it makes me think about how trained are we to find one another, to search and rescue and find one another? How trained are we in rescuing people that wander in their faith and go to dangerous places in their souls? Maybe the most important work. How do we understand that? That's what I want to talk about this evening and do so by uh, thinking a little bit about identifying lost people and recovering lost people, okay? So let's do both of those. We'll look at both of those through these three verses we have. First of all, in identifying lost or wayward people. And by lost, I mean people that have professed faith and have made allegiance to God, but they are wandering away from their profession. This is what James says, those that wander from the truth. When we hear truth, we rightly understand truth equals God's truth, like Psalm 119, where the writer says, the sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. 
But in the book of James, uh, the idea of truth is more than believing propositions and accepting propositions. It's about living truth. The way that you live according to the truth. Jesus put it this way, abide in my commandments. The idea of abide means that I'm actually living into the commandments of God. Now, why do I think this is significant? Because lost people can often fool us with their words, right? If you've ever been in a car, and by the way, I heard an interesting uh, fact that uh, the average man spends, uh, drives 276 miles annually as a result of being lost because he won't ask for directions, right? So we've all been with lost people and their words will fool us. I know what I'm doing, I know where I'm going. Well, the same thing can happen with spiritually lost people. In fact, we judge their state more by what they believe rather than what they do. And I would say that's particularly true in our context. First of all, this theological tradition, Reformed Presbyterian, that puts a lot of emphasis on what you know and what you believe. So the main thing we can be focusing on is, do you know the right things? Do you believe the right things? Okay. That's what I want to know. Or this day, in the wider church, where truth is mostly understood to be subjective. Language like, you know, I prayed about it, I felt it, I, I was led by the Spirit. And so it doesn't so much come about uh, whether or not I'm actually walking in the commands of God, but whether I feel close to God. In fact, someone could profess great love and intimacy with God and say, I never felt closer to God, and yet be far from his commands. And because this happens in our days, because this happens in our lives, uh, we need to remember, number one, that Jesus understood. If you go to Jesus' teaching on the Holy Spirit in the book of John and what it means to be led by the Holy Spirit, the very first thing he says is if you love me, you will obey my commandments. This is at the top of the section talking about the Spirit. And so wandering people can allow their words to really cover up how they're living, their behavior. And this is the thing. People typically don't reveal change in their belief before change in their behavior. That is, the change in the behavior comes long before someone will articulate, I've changed my views, I've changed my belief. And people don't often call us up and say, listen, I just want you to know I don't believe in God anymore. Hi, I just wanted to call you up and let you know that I'm really cynical about the Christian faith. Hi, I just wanted to, that isn't typically what happens. The way you identify a lost and wandering person may be, you know, I noticed this person hasn't come to community group in three or four weeks. Or it may be, I notice this person only comes to church when they usher. Or I know this person, you know, just seems to be part of community on a certain level and then they leave really soon. Those might not always be, but they can often be the signs of a lost and a wandering person. Whether or not their beliefs seem orthodox. But a second part of it is self-deception. This is a mark of a wandering person in the book of Hebrews the writer says that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So it's no surprise, we live in the most individualistic age of all time, right? 
This is just modern Western American life. We also tend to believe that the truth is in us. So the way I get the truth is to go inward to find myself. And so consequently, we believe that we know ourselves so well. This is a mark of modern people. We think we know ourselves so well. But is that the truth? Heidi Grant Halverson, who's a professor of motivational science at Columbia University, says this. Who's right? Who knows you best? The research suggests that they do, the other person. Other people's assessment of your personality predicts your behavior on average better than your assessment does. The truth is, we don't know ourselves nearly as well as we think we do. When it comes to performance, our surprising self-ignorance makes understanding where we went right and where we went wrong difficult. And then to add his voice to this is Timothy Wilson, a professor at UVA, who says, when it comes to maintaining a sense of well-being, we are ultimate spin doctors of information. We will twist, confuse, contort, and ignore whatever information we need to to maintain our sense of self. Daniel Gilbert, who's done a lot of research in this field, refers to this as psychological immune system. Our psychological immune system. When we feel threatened psychologically, we have a way to say these things aren't true. The Bible said this a long time ago, actually. The nature of evil is deceptive. In short, sin is smarter than you are. Sin is smarter than I am. That is in my own individual mind and my own individual reasoning. And the way that sin entices people typically isn't through them giving up their principles. It's through their desires. You see, I'll say that again. The way that sin entices people are not necessarily through their principles but by their desire. No one looks to violate their principles. No one does that. But everyone can get overtaken by their desires. The book of James in chapter 1 says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Wandering is not typically being blind to our principles, it's being blind to our desires. That's what leads us wandering. The book of Ephesians highlights this when it says darkness and ignorance is actually a product of a hardened heart that has sought to like sort of make itself alive with desire. You know what it's like where, you know, we, we I don't know about you, but my philosophy in life is if a dessert doesn't taste good, it doesn't count, right? So like if I'm eating something, I'm like, you know, I eat about 10 of these cookies, like they don't have a taste. Well, that doesn't count as my dessert. I get to have another one until it tastes good, right? Well, we'll do this with desires as much as, as much as we need to do until we feel like we're there. And that means this, a wandering person has a whole world of desire in them that they're not speaking about. A whole world of desire in them that they're not speaking about. Maybe your friend, your closest friend, it may be a family member that you've spent hours talking about. It may be your own kid. You know, I have found in my parenting over the years that I would put my emphasis on instilling truth in my child instead of asking questions to see what was in their heart, to learn what their desires were, because I think I was probably afraid 
that they might have desires like mine, <laughs> right? I didn't want to see that, so instead I would just instill truth. We are a community of broken desires here, which means we ought to be a community that can be honest about our desires. That someone can say, you know, I'm really disappointed that I didn't get that promotion because I really wanted to appear to be more successful than I am. Or, you know, there's a married guy at work who's paying a lot of attention to me, hitting on me, and I need to be honest with you, it makes me feel good. Or it may be, you know something? I know I've said I have a little bit of a struggle with things like pornography, but let me tell you how often it is. We need to be able to have a community that can say, these are my desires, before people wander away feeling like they can't. Because, as the book of Galatians says, we all get caught in transgressions. All of us do. You know, I like that phrase, it's, an animal doesn't mean to get caught. There's a side of it, right, where you know, there's intention in our sin, but there's also a part of our sin that could be a sin of ignorance. We all get caught. And sometimes, you know, that being caught happens in very subtle ways, in periods where we're disappointed with God, in periods where we've experienced a loss, an experience perhaps when the unanswered prayer goes on for year seven, year eight, year ten. Sin is smarter than you and I are, but it is not smarter than God's word and the community committed to his word. Sin is not smarter than that. And so we find that we have safeguard from wandering right here. But let me mention one more closely before we close to the last point. Another way to recognize a wandering person is they typically tend to be a thankless person. They've drifted into that. Uh, the passage in Hebrews as its background is Psalm 95. And that's when Israel was wandering. And they were wandering in the desert and they were grumbling and complaining against God. And what they would say is, I want to go back to Egypt. Now, this was crazy, right? Because they were slaves in Egypt. But they were so unhappy, they said, I'd rather go back and be a slave and eat well and be beaten and treated like, you know, a piece of garbage than do this. Sin makes us crazy. And so, some were led away. That word led away in Hebrews is not just sort of wandering off, it's apostasy. They turned away. And so wandering can turn into something much more serious. But there was a forgetfulness at the heart of the thanklessness. They had forgotten the Passover lamb. They had forgotten when they left the Lord that had liberated them from Egypt. Just like you and I can forget the grace of God. When I begin to forget that God's heart beats for me, that when I wake up in the morning, God looks at me just like a, a parent is waiting for their child to wake up. When I forget that God's grace is lavish, when I forget that he's for me and not against me, when I forget that there wasn't anything he wouldn't give to have me, when I forget he's the only one that loves me unconditionally, when I forget grace, I'm going to be prone to wander. And so it's the case with all of us. But how do we now think about the role of a rescuer? 
And this I want to state, I don't think I can overstate it enough because the Bible doesn't. This language, it says those that, you know, recover, you know, a lost sinner will save their soul and cover a multitude of sins. Meaning as you intervene, it will guard people from self-destruction and damage that they would regret for years and years to come. Maybe we never thought we were that significant. So we have to understand a couple things here. First of all, our obligation to rescue people. Uh, We live in a culture right now where the prevailing rule is people have a right to be happy. And so to challenge people's happiness is construed as a violation of their freedom and a violation of their justice. This is what we're in today. I mean, one of the worst things you can do is challenge someone in their happiness and their desires. Now, of course, the Christian faith doesn't call believers to coerce or pressure other people to change. We can't change anybody. But we do have an obligation to speak. Our Old Testament reading, you find the Lord saying to Ezekiel, "Uh, listen, I want you to go and speak to these people. If you speak to them and they blow you off and they don't change, the blood's not on your hand. But if you refuse to speak to them, the blood is on your hands. Sobering. Which means if a brother and sister, their behavior isn't lining up with the faith that they profess, we must speak. We must go to them. It might be a friend or a spouse who has said again, it's just a busy season I'm in. But the busy season has been going on for months and even years. And so it causes them to pull out of fellowship, to pull out of community. Or maybe it's speaking to a roommate who didn't come home last night because they chose to sleep with their girlfriends or boyfriends. And so it's your role to say, listen, you know, even if you're not sleeping together, which of course is a different thing about the way Christians understand sex and covenant and permanent commitment, but even if you're not, if you're just sort of hanging up there, it's unwise. And it's also a a terrible witness for Christ in a community, willing to say that. Or maybe it has to do with beliefs, where someone begins to sort of move away from this idea of Jesus and his word to sort of opinion and experience primarily. Or maybe the cultural wind is blowing them, or maybe a church tradition is pulling them more and more. Hebrews says, take care, brothers. In fact, if you look at that passage, each one starts with brothers. This is family stuff we're talking about here. What's it mean to be a faithful family? Brothers, take care. Take care. We have an obligation to take care of each other. And we're told, not now, or rather not later, but now, exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, not as long as it's called tomorrow, But today, you know, if someone goes missing in 24 hours, man, everything goes into motion. But we have to ask ourselves, in the church, could someone go missing for 24 weeks or 24 months? And would anybody know? Would anybody move forward? You know, I'll give you an example that I've seen over and over. Um, Someone begins to date someone that really is spiritually contrary to their faith, not good for their faith. Uh, The faith that they profess, the faith that at one point they said, no, you know, this is my life. 
Or they begin to date someone that's clearly nominal in religion and doesn't have a living relationship with Christ. And so, you know, a date or two happens, and maybe as friends, we, we begin to get a little bit, you know, concerned and nervous, but we think, well, you know, they've been lonely, and it's just a couple dates. And then a couple months go by, a couple months go by, and maybe there's a casual conversation, but nothing that's too important. Then one day on Facebook, you get an announcement that they're engaged. And the question might be, how did that happen? Well, it happened a year and a half ago, right? It happened before we were able to engage. And, you know, let's take it out of relationships. It could be work. It could be money. It could be, you know, a, a friend that drinks too much. What, I mean, whatever it would be, this idea that you and I have this obligation to move in there because today is the day of salvation. Today is the day that God wants to use one of his search and rescuers to deliver someone. Deliver them out of the clutches of idolatry and the clutches of self-destruction into the arms of Jesus. So they begin to flourish. I mean, one of the most beautiful things in the world to see is someone that has been delivered and changed. And how their life just begins to blossom. And you being the agent of that. But lest I sound like this is the Christian Gestapo, let me get to the last point. Because there's a way we do it that's very important. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted, bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. He says, you who are spiritual, that doesn't mean you who are especially self-righteous, right? Or you who are sort of elite, or you that are staff, or you that are, you know, anyway, you get the point but rather just simply those that are in a better place spiritually. You know, those are stronger. You know, he's not talking about, you know, SEAL team, the God's SEAL team going in. He's just talking about everyday soldiers going on in there. The word restore means to restore people to a proper condition and right mind. Sin makes us crazy. I've mentioned this before um, uh, a couple that I married and a couple that I was involved in their lives quite a bit when I was doing ministry on a campus. And um, I remember getting the call from her one night saying that uh, her husband had uh, been unfaithful. He committed adultery. Now, let me tell you the good story at the end. They spent time with us last summer and their marriage has never done better. And they're in ministry where they're helping broken couples. But I'll tell you, when I talked to that guy on the phone in the throes of that, it was like I didn't even know him. He was a crazy person. I mean, just, you know, the, the, he's had two daughters and a wife and the things he's saying. Or I think about another friend who deals with addiction of alcohol and went through a rough patch and now he's out of it. And he said, you know, it, it just frightens me the fact that at one point I was going, you know, I could just get a condo next to work. I don't really need this problem. All of us are vulnerable. You know, none of us can live unto ourselves. We're all needy. But we're to restore people in a spirit of gentleness. And then it says, keep watching yourself. And that simply means gentle and humble. If you feel like you can't go to someone in love, if you feel like you can't go to them with a spirit of gentleness, if you're just kind of mad at them, it's probably better not to go. Or... 
If you yourself are tempted by that very thing, if you yourself are weak, it'd probably be better for you not to go. But if that's not you, to go with gentleness and humility, you know, with love and tears in your eyes and say, I'm concerned about you. And then willing to bear the cost. Um, you know, there's a heavy-heartedness. And this is one of the things that, you know, I, I've just been blessed to see. I was, I'm thinking about two people in our congregation uh, that began to become concerned about someone that was drifting away from just solid gospel biblical teaching. And they were bearing that burden for a year and bearing it heavy. You know, all of us would love to just sort of check out and go to the beach. But that didn't help us, right? Our call is to bear burdens for one another. This is the great law of Christ, he says, the witness of Christ. Because Jesus comes and he bears the burden of his people to the point of death and hell. I've used this Bonhoeffer quote before, but it's worth mentioning. The burden of men was so heavy for God himself that he had to endure the cross. God verily bore the burden of men in the body of Jesus Christ. But he bore them as a mother carries her child. As a shepherd enfolds the lost lamb that has been found. God took men upon himself and they weighted him to the ground. This is kind of the burden-bearing. This denomination's Book of Church Order is actually good on this point. Let me read this to you. The power which Christ has given the church is for building up and not for destruction. It is to be exercised under a dispensation of mercy and not wrath, acting the part of a tender mother correcting her children. That's the spirit that we go in. And so... For us to live in the Spirit means to be committed to one another in a way that's not convenient, but is life-giving. In a way that's not easy, but is saving. Uh, In a way that's bold, but a way that's loving. Let's be that community together, because I need it. I know you need it, too. Let's pray. God, thank you for uh, that none of us have to be alone. Thank you that you have given one another that we might avoid perils of our soul. In Christ's name, amen.